Greetings, friends. Welcome back to Critically Acclaimed, the film review podcast where good taste and uh, you know the rest. Um, my name is Whitney Seibold. I am a film critic. I write for Slash Film. With me, as always, is the venerable and the incredibly talented. William, why don't you introduce yourself? Yeah, if you want to venner me, you can totally uh, do so. My name is William Bibiani. Uh, I write for The Rap. Everybody calls me Bibbs. And uh, yeah, this is this is the Critically Acclaimed show where we review new movies. And uh, this week on Critically Acclaimed, uh, we're still under the weather. So forgive us if there's a dry hacking cough at some point. Uh, <laughs> but we're going to be reviewing the new releases, 13 Lives, Not Okay, which is not necessarily a review of 13 Lives. That's a different film. Uh, Resurrection, Allegoria, and this is Guar. <laughs> yeah, uh, this is Guar is a week old. Mm. But uh, cat, I promised I was going to catch up with it, and lo, I did. So I'm glad I get to talk about Guar. And it's worth noting that uh, there's a couple of like other like big releases that were in theaters this week, and we couldn't go to them. Uh, I, I'm sick, and I'm I'm isolating in my apartment, and it sucks. Mm-hmm. So uh, I, we did the best we could. Just 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 cut us some slack. Please, we, we beg of you. <laughs> I, uh, we, that's, I think we've seen plenty, and uh, yeah, yeah we, we get to talk about them. So, uh, William, because we're not reviewing uh, Crypto the Superdog, uh, or no, it's The League of Super Pets. The League of um, Super Pets, yes. Yeah, the we're, other, we're, the we're other not... Dwayne Johnson superhero movie this year. Yeah. Um, Crypto the Superdog. They're really scraping the bottom of the barrel oh, there. That, oh, come right. on. They, a lot of the superheroes have pets. You want to make a kid's movie about the pets. <laughs> I'm not going to fight you on that. That's a cute idea for kids. It, it's fine. It's fine. I got it's, it's, that's, uh, that's, that's all perfectly I know is that fine. It's, all I know is that it's not doing well, and mm. Crypto the Superdog is like one of those kitschy things that we used to joke about in high school. Mm. Uh, but we're not going to be talking about Crypto the Superdog anymore. We didn't uh, see it. In fact, William, what would you like to talk about first? Because well, there are this is kind of a bit of a jumble of movies. This it week. is when you take out that like one big family movie release, it's just kind of a weird collection of films that are opening this weekend, and that's kind of true for this whole summer. Uh, a lot of previous summers, like pre-pandemic, there would be uh-huh. a lot more fights at the box office every single week of the summer there'd be just like multiple would-be blockbusters opening against each other trying to cannibalize each other and because we're just out of the pandemic some people are still releasing movies that were done before or during the pandemic uh and other people are still sort of gearing up into high gear there have been some really really great and some really really big movies also some stinkers but it's not as we know this constant deluge of giant would-be blockbuster content, and there's a lot of just smaller, more interesting films uh, that are still out there and are still being able to get some attention. Uh, I'm going to start with perhaps the most mainstream film we're watching today, and that's a film uh-huh. that I saw and you didn't. Uh, it is the latest film from Ron Howard, Academy Award winner Ron Howard. Uh, you, you no doubt know him... Uh, from uh, uh, the Andy Griffith show, which everyone that, still watches religiously. Yeah, that, that, that's how people know Ron Howard. No, Ron yeah. Howard, um, even if he was never an actor, uh, he would be a notable director. He's he's directed um, about 25 movies at this point. He's directed a lot. He's directed a lot, and, a lot of big hits, a lot of celebrated movies, uh, one oh, Oscar winner for Best Picture, A Beautiful Mind, a couple other nominees like Frost Nixon and Apollo 13, 
which I would still probably argue is his masterpiece. Uh, but he's directed a lot of fun movies. He did Willow. Uh, he did uh, the the Dan Brown the, movies for better or worse. The, the Robert Langdon trilogy. The, yeah. all, he did all three of those movies. He his did the Grinch for some reason. Oh, that the yeah. See, so he's done some real stinkers, mm-hmm. uh, and but he 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 also did um uh one of the Star Wars movies, uh, the the Han Solo solo movie. Mm-hmm. That's a that's a stinker too. But he's also done <laughs> a lot some of people really like, like that one. I'm I'm not among them, but there's stuff I like. Yeah, about. Uh, yeah. He also did Rush, uh, the car race movie. That's a really good film. Excellent. Uh, is he tends to work in a very kind of broadly Hollywood kind of mold. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he'll make, uh, he'll make clearly a, openly yeah. mainstream Hollywood prestige pictures. If you want a story, bad, yeah. if you want a well-structured story to be smartly directed, hitting and perhaps pushing even a little too hard all the big melodramatic buttons, if mm. you want a film that feels, especially if it's based on a true story, to, to just feel, like, important in that glossy Hollywood way, which is not an insult, it's just a style. Uh-huh. Uh, Ron Howard is one of the best at that. And I would argue that even the movies of his that I don't like are still masterfully crafted, it's just the material might be more manipulated than others. Like, I'm not a fan of A Beautiful Mind. He directed the hell out of that movie. Mm-hmm. That is a very well-directed movie, it's just a very manipulative story, and I don't appreciate it. Um... On the other hand, I think Apollo 13 is masterful. I think Frost Nixon is incredibly well-directed. I think I agree with you. I think Rush is one of his better movies. Uh, and this is another film of that ilk. This is based on a true story. Uh, this is the story of a soccer team uh, that was trapped in a cave-in uh, in, I think in, it was Thailand. It was in Thailand, yeah. It was yeah. In northern Thailand. Not a cave-in, sorry, a flash flood. Uh, it was, the, uh, it was yeah. an early start to monsoon season. Uh, they just happened to be spelunking in a cave, uh, and it was like a tourist destination. Uh, and then all of a sudden, the, the, cl- the cave just completely floods really fast, like within hours. And mm-hmm. they're trapped, and ordinarily it'd be a quick walkout. But because it's completely flooded and because there's a lot of narrow passages, it's actually nearly impossible to get to them. And as a result, no one knew if they were even alive for multiple days. They ended up enlisting uh, a series of cave divers, people who don't just explore caves. From England, most of them, initially from England, and then they pulled in a few other uh, people from around the world. Hmm. Um, but they pulled in cave divers and these are people who don't just explore caves they like go scuba diving in them in like incredibly tight corners and crevasses and it's incredibly dangerous and it is an incredibly specific skill that actually only a few people all things considered have in the world so even though everyone in Thailand and from all over the world was coming in to try to find a way to rescue these 12 kids and their soccer coach uh these were like the only guys who actually had the very specific skill set necessary to reach them. Uh, and the story of how those people were rescued uh, is incredibly odd. Uh, in- involves uh, a-, a scheme, uh, a plan of action that was incredibly dangerous and had never been attempted before because the circumstances had never been created before. Uh, and it's incredibly dangerous, risky. At least one person died. Uh, it's a, a harrowing story. And it, you mm. can know it's a harrowing story because 
Uh, it happened in 2018, and this is the third movie about it already. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was a I mean, film... It's, it's, here's yeah. the thing. I, I read up on the actual event. Um, I, I didn't see this movie, but I, yeah. I know a little bit about, like, just what you know, a very casual uh, research would reveal. Mm. And it would it timed out like it was a Hollywood movie already. Mm-hmm. So it makes perfect sense that somebody, especially someone like Ron Howard, would yeah. want to make a movie about this. Yeah, it's uh, exquisitely structured it's, in terms the, of like how the events played out. Yeah. Yeah, like the the there's an actual like actual real life ticking clock in here as mm-hmm. they need to rush before the weather forecast comes true and the rains become even heavier and they're trapped in, and the team is trapped in the the flooded cave for like an additional month. Also, uh, they're running out of oxygen in there, which doesn't make it any easier. They're, they're running out of ax- oxygen. They were able to call for help from around the world. Meanwhile, there's the parents are above ground worrying about what's going on. So there's some actual like real life drama going on there. Uh, and there was also a lot of drama as to what was going on and how they had to pump the water out of the cave, mm-hmm. which was also this gigantic technical, technical process. Well, they, um, they weren't just trying to pump it out of the cave. What they were trying to do is one of the reason why the cave filled up so quickly. wasn't just that like water, like fell down to the bottom of the mountain and then like rushed in. Uh, there are all these sinkholes in the mountain, and whenever the water would land in the mountain, it would just pour into these holes like a colander. Mm-hmm. And so, one of the things that we see in this movie, and they, we see this a bit more than in some of the other films uh, that have been made about it, were were the efforts to make all that water run off the mountain and destroy crops, mm-hmm. basically just because it would buy those kids time. Uh, there are two movies that have been based on this story already. One is a 2019 film called The Cave, which actually starred the real cave divers as themselves. I didn't see that one. Uh, but there was also an exquisite documentary that came out last year called The Rescue, which I believe is on Disney+. Plus. Uh, and it is absolutely riveting. And it is 100% like you watch that movie and it is, it lays out everything you need to know about the story, all the incredibly complex geography and uh, logistical impossibilities are incredibly clear to you. You get to know all of the cave divers really, really well and you see like how much it means to them. They got, I believe some a lot of it was recreation, but you got some really incredible underwater photography showing how the rescue occurred. Um, yeah, and I remember watching that movie thinking, A, this is great. B, you could not have scripted a more Hollywood movie. Like, it's just, right. <laughs> it, it's absolutely spot on. So when Ron Howard comes out with a movie based on that same story, with a few, like, big-name actors, uh, the lead cave divers in this version uh, are played by Viggo Mortensen and Colin Farrell. Uh, and then uh, later on, they bring in uh, a cave diver who's also a doctor, which is an important plot point, played by Joel Edgerton. Uh, they're the most recognizable actors in the piece. Um, mm. So it's got that star power. But it's weird when you compare the two. And I, can, and I can't help it because I've seen The Rescue. If I hadn't, I'd be going to this a little bit more, maybe a bit more clear-headed. But Ron Howard pulled fewer punches than that documentary when it comes to the melodrama. It's actually a kind of a perfunctory film in a lot of ways. Like, he sets up like some big emotional beats and he doesn't always pay him off. Mm-hmm. He's just kind of just showing and then this happened and then and then this happened and oftentimes to the detriment of the story like unlike the documentary we have an opportunity here maybe to get to know the kids a little bit better, see what they're doing in the cave more. Ron Howard doesn't take that bait. 
Hmm. And he actually like leaves that except except for like one short scene. We don't see more of them than we do in the documentary about it. Uh, we don't get a lot of the harsher, more dangerous elements played up. We don't see the parents or the local politicians who are kind of being railroaded here, where if these kids die, this like governor's career is over, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. All these things are set up to be these like really big melodramatic and in a, in a good Hollywood way, but you know, and these melodramatic subplots. And then they just kind of don't play and they just sort of get dropped for a while. And every once in a while he'd be like, Hey, remember that guy? And I'm like, I do Ron. Did you want to tell a story with him? <laughs> uh, but, and, and I think this is the thing. I, I think this is, it's a little cynical. I think this is the kind of movie made for people who would never watch a documentary. You would only watch the oh. story of Viggo Mortensen and Colin Farrell and Joel Edgerton were in it. And it's got that, that little premature, uh, and I think if you've never seen another movie about, again, I can't speak to the Cape, but if you've never seen The Rescue, 13 Lies is probably going to play really good. It's got some really harrowing, claustrophobic, mm. underwater stuff. Uh, it does clearly present just how unbelievably endangered these kids are and how nearly impossible it is to do literally anything to help them. Uh, and that's really all you really need from this kind of a thriller is tell us something is impossible and then watch people figure out a way to solve that problem. <laughs> and that can be enough. And so it's not a bad yeah, movie. I, but what's weird about it is that I feel like this thing that Ron Howard could have brought to this, that kind of extra layer of emotion, that extra layer of involvement with members of the cast, if you will, uh, that otherwise might not have been uh, highlighted as you would in a documentary. Mm-hmm. He doesn't go for it, actually. He's he's weirdly reserved. And as a result, again, Ron Howard can overdo his melodrama. We've all seen it. But here, I think, he, I think it would have benefited from putting on some more of it, honestly. I think he's trying to be too mature in a way. I think mm-hmm. a little bit of the Ron Howard... Um, you know, sort of family-friendly magic might have been better in this particular film. So I, I think it's reasonably well-constructed, and if you don't know the story, it's exciting to watch, but I've, I would definitely recommend watching The Rescue instead. Okay. Yeah. I've, I've seen that, um, like, that was, uh, we've talked a lot about a film that, and I think we talk about it just because it's really underrated, but Robert Zemeckis' film The Walk, which, yeah. if if you've seen the documentary film, the Oscar-winning documentary film Man on Wire, you know the story of Philippe, uh, Philippe Petit, who climbed to the top of the World Trade Centers while they were in the midst of being built, mm-hmm. uh, strung a, a high wire across them, and walked across it like a tightrope act, just yeah. as a stunt. It was like an, a performance art piece. Uh, all of that is just detailed, it's just dramatized with big Hollywood actors in The Walk. But... The difference is there's this wonderful 3D sequence at the end, and if you saw it on IMAX 3D, it was amazing. Oh, that's that's a, a movie I would be like. It's one of the few movies I would actually recommend if you ever get to see it in 3D, don't miss it. Yeah, yeah. The walk, is, uh, the walk is very special in 3D. I give him uh, Zemeckis, using just wonderful state-of-the-art technology, was able to sort of point the camera straight down from above, uh, from the top of the World Trade Centers, so we got to see him on the wire and we got to look straight down and it looked like this vast chasm stretching away from you. So mm-hmm. there was at least a little bit of dazzle to the yeah. story now because it's a Hollywood film. But you're saying yeah, that Ron Howard isn't bringing any kind of like 
Hollywood. He's, he's not it. really, and that's interesting. And what's and this is an interesting case though because I was thinking about the walk a lot when I was watching this movie and. In the case of The Walk, Robert Zemeckis had clearly seen Man on Wire and had made this film not just to copy it, but because he knew that there was a part of the film that was missing, which is, in reality, no one got any footage, actual, like, moving camera footage, like film, of him walking on the wire between the World Trade Center. They're only still photographs. Mm. Uh, So The Walk exists to give you that, because that's the one thing the documentary couldn't do. Yeah. Now, Ron Howard, to his credit, is not remaking the documentary. They were being made concurrently. Mm-hmm. So it's not like he saw the documentary and said, I can make a conscious choice of what I'm going to keep or keep or do differently or whatever. It's probably a case of parallel storytelling choices yeah. where they both decided to present the story this way and to leave this unknown until this exact point in the narrative. Because, as I said before, the actual events of the story are pretty well structured and cinematic on their own. You don't have to change them a lot to get like a decent Hollywood script out of it. But the problem is that the documentary did come out first and it actually does convey a lot of the information and the suspense and indeed the characters Mm. better. Ron Howard seems much more interested in this as uh, here are guys who are good at what they do. They go in, they do the thing. Almost uh, uh, like Ron Howard's attempt to make a Michael Mann movie, which is not strictly in Ron Howard's wheelhouse. Mm. Um, but he again, he knows how to shoot it. He knows how to get good performances. It's just, it's lacking in, again, if you take a story, a real life story, and you ask yourself, I'm going to get a director to tell this story. And you want a director with some clout and uh, maybe a, a, a well-established perspective. Mm. You kind of expect him to bring that perspective. Like, for example, if... Baz Luhrmann directs a, docu- a, a, a biopic about Elvis. <laughs> you've got a, you've got an idea in your head how that's going to play out, and if it doesn't play out that way, you're kind of asking yourself, why did we get Baz? And I feel that way about Ron Howard and Thirteen Lives, where again, it's a reasonably well made movie, but it just Ron Howard's particular knack, I think, mm. is for telling really emotional human often ensemble stories i maintain to this day that one of his very best movies is parenthood which is just a very sincere wonderful ensemble comedy drama because he's just really good with actors he's really good with interpersonal relationships and even in a more technically complicated movie like apollo 13 the reason why apollo 13 works is the relationships between the astronauts uh, in the actual spaceship, it's the relationship between all the tech guys in Houston. It's a relationship with Kathleen Quinlan and uh, Tom Hanks. It's those human connections that make it work better. And here, he doesn't emphasize the points in the story that give him that material. And I think he might have been trying to challenge himself, or uh, maybe he just thought it would be more interesting this way. But I actually think it's slightly to the film's detriment. Um, again, it's not a bad movie. It's an okay movie. And if you've never seen The Rescue, you might like it even more than I did. But uh, I do think it's just okay. And I think The Rescue is legitimately great. So I guess that's all I got to say about that. Okay. Uh, tell me about, uh, speaking of, uh, I just told you about a movie that's just okay. Tell mm. me about a movie that's not okay. Oh, well, I think I will. <laughs> the movie's called Not Okay. Uh, this is a movie that was written and directed by Quinn Shepard, one of those filmmakers who makes you feel very, very old, uh, because she's 27. Uh, 
Well, good and, for them. Uh, no, it's it's wonderful that that she's she's making feature films. And uh, she, if you saw the film Unaccompanied Minors, she was one of the kids in Unaccompanied Minors. No. And now, yeah, now she's That's hilarious. She's, uh, she's grown up. Uh, she, Unaccompanied uh, Minors, by the way, is a very very cute Christmas movie that Alonzo Duralde introduced me to about a bunch of kids who are supposed to be like flying to meet their like other like divorced parents for the holidays but then like there's a Mm -hmm. blizzard and they get kind of stuck at the airport together and they have adventures it's quite good actually yeah uh she uh she made a feature film in 2017 called blame and now she's making not okay uh which stars uh an actress i love zoe deutsch um zoe deutsch always brings a lot of almost a manic energy to her performances. Like she really is, is there to energize whatever she's going to touch. Uh, this movie, she plays, uh, a complete and utter shiftless, lazy, directionless millennial in all of the ways that you hear about in the news. Uh, she comes from privilege, uh, she is trying to become a journalist, but she's not good. She's constantly on the brink of being fired, and she has no goals. She just doesn't know what she's going to do with her life. She's just kind of, and, and she's already like she's already thirty, and she doesn't know where she's pointed. Uh, she does know that social media is a great way to get places, and in order to impress uh, this guy she has a crush on, who actually is an Instagram influencer, she decides to fake a vacation to Paris. She's like, I'm going to go to Paris on a writer's retreat. Now, she can't afford to go to the writer's retreat, and she's not talented enough, but uh, she decides to start, like, figuring out plane tickets and where she could go in Paris. And she gets uh, props like a beret and a baguette. And she poses against blue screens and photoshops, everything. She fakes the whole trip. Uh, and okay. She's, she's faked this thing about her life, not getting a lot of traction. People are liking her pictures. That's all she's interested in. Then as it so happens, an actual terrorist attack occurs in Paris when she's supposed to be there. And now she has to pretend like she's survived through that because she said she was there when the attack occurred. She, uh, quote, she, quote, sneaks back into America and in that she goes to the airport and kind of mixes in with the people who are getting off of the plane. Her family oh is there God. saying, oh, thank goodness you're OK. And all of a sudden she becomes this voice for trauma survivors. And she starts writing these very penetrating essays about how it's OK to be not OK. And uh, in becoming the voice for all, and starts the hashtag, not okay. And that kind of takes social media by storm. She ends up falling in with a young woman, her uh, played by an actress named Mia Isaac, a teenager who recently survived an actual school shooting. So now she has to pretend to relate to the trauma of an actual school shooter, all while trying to keep this drama going. It never occurs to her. Well, it does occur to her to sort of tell the truth, but it's like she goes in too quickly. So she doesn't really know how to uh, say no after she's already pushed it so far. The movie is very much about, you know, not just the instinct to lie online and create a fake persona for yourself, because that's what we all do really. When we go online, when we do our social media, there's certain things we would tweet uh, and certain things that we wouldn't tweet. Uh, And it's just because we're trying to instinctively now 
create a persona, create a version of ourselves. That's I online. like to think of it as uh, we're, we're going through our representative, even if our representative is just the part of us that says, mm, I shouldn't tweet that. Uh, yeah, yeah. And, you know, I, I like, oh, that like, would be a good thing to tweet. Like, there's a part of us mm -hmm. in our heads that says, this is good to be forward-facing, and this is something that, y y let's just not today. Yeah, <laughs> let's and, just and not do that. Thanks to the popularity of Instagram, even that, that's become, like, a living People can yeah. garner enough followers just presenting their own lives or this fictionalized version of their own lives. Uh, and if they get enough followers, actual like products will call them and say, hey, could you drink a soda in one of your pictures? And that's advertising for them. Do you realize how so, dystopian that sounds when you say it like that? Like if that had mm. been in a book written in the 80s, we would have all gone, oh, how far society would fall. Uh, you know, like we, no. That we'd have to like turn that into our commodity, you know? Like, the, this this is very much a fucking dystopia movie. I, I think yeah. that, um, you know, Quinn Shepard, who's very young, is living all of this and is being very critical of it. And uh, I think she also knows very well how this, this kind of stuff operates. Uh, it also is very much about the way we commodify trauma. The way trauma survivors are turned into celebrities. Mm -hmm. It's really, really weird. And we, we can look at somebody like, um, to cite an actual example, uh, David Hogg. Yeah, survived a school shooting Hawk, yeah. and yeah. uh and he became a voice for anti-gun activism and he's become a voice for a lot of different uh causes but here recently uh it's like people are now speaking out against david hogg because he's saying weird things online it's like his persona isn't matching that of the celebrity trauma survivor any longer so now pe now like his followers are turning on him for what i don't know exactly why uh oh. But so, yeah, this is about uh, on this very common thing, this online fraud, you could call it fraud if you like, of people who invent these personas for themselves. And uh, Zoe Deutsch, because she's Zoe Deutsch, you're actually kind of on her side as she does horrible, more and more horrible things. I was going to ask, she's because kind that's of, one of the hardest kind of like, thing to do. That's like when yeah. you're doing a story. And this is something that I think even like this is one of the reasons why I'm not a huge fan of Seinfeld, even though I respect the construction mm. of a lot of its jokes because it takes place over such a short period of time. And because the characters keep doing the same terrible things over and over again, when they get caught in these elaborate lies and they feel the yeah. need to just perpetuate the lie and do whatever they can, they come across kind of monstrous to me, but there is a mm. way to do this without making us lose our affection for, or at the very least sympathy for people trapped in an impossible situation. One of my yeah. favorite comedies is a Preston Sturges film called Hail the Conquering Hero. Did you ever see that one? No, I, I haven't seen that one. <clears throat> uh, it's, um, I think it's Eddie Bracken. Uh, he uh, was in World War II, but because he had hay fever, like really bad hay fever, they never shipped him to the front. And he was like doing like filing or something this mm. entire time. But in order to not be an embarrassment to his family, he just sweetened the the letters he wrote back a little. He didn't let them know that part. You know, just said he was uh -huh. off doing war stuff. And so they're expecting him to come home after the war and everything's going to be, you know, like he's coming home like the local hero and he's feeling terrible about this. And he runs into a group of soldiers who actually saw action and take pity on him and said, hey, listen, we're, we're going through your town on the same train as you are. Why don't we just jump off? We'll tell a couple of war stories with you. We'll just sell it out. And then we'll all go, and then everything will go back to normal, and everything will be fine. But 
as soon as people find out that he wasn't just in the war, but like a war hero, mm-hmm. the lie gets bigger and bigger until finally people are forcing him to run for office, and he no he, every he no longer knows how to get out of it without hurting yeah. more lives than perpetuating the lie. And you mm. feel really, really bad for him because it wasn't even really his idea. And it's it's a tricky thing to do because I have so much anxiety watching these types of movies <laughs> because I'm like, no, just. Just tell the truth. It's going to be so painful, but it'll be over quick. Rip off the Band-Aid, Zoe Deutsch. Like, I, I don't know if I can handle it, honestly, in my late, recent yeah, well, emotional state. The, there's the, the... Most of the film is, you know, you're waiting for the lie to be revealed. That's that's a common film story, the lie revealed. And, uh, uh, and, uh, and of course, it's going to come out at some point. And the, the way it comes out... Uh, I'll, actually, I'll say this. It feels very organic, and it feels very fair. Uh, it it fe- and a, the way the people react to the truth is actually incredibly fair and uh, whether or not the Zoe Deutsch character gets properly uh, redeemed or whether she reaches fame or whether she's pilloried I'm not going to say but I feel like it leaves you in a really good place with what she did and the only unfortunate thing about that is it kind of turns the camera back on her when really this movie should have had a little bit more courage to make it about the system, Mm. about how uh, this sort of fame seeking system is this self perpetuating monster and that it's going to keep on going. It's not just this one person. Mm. Uh, I feel like the film is, is becomes a little bit too intimate and loses focus on sort of its thesis but at the same time, it, it's it's still in there. The comment is still in there. It just ends in a little bit more of a personal way. Uh, and golly, Zoe Deutsch, she's just great. Uh, <laughs> she knows how to play these kinds of characters, these kind of like energetic, likable kind of scoundrels. Uh, you didn't see the film she was in, Buffaloed, did you? No, although I've seen her in other films. I think she's an incredible actor. Yeah. yeah I do, I'm a huge um, fan. Yeah, she's really, really great in uh, in... Buffaloed, which I think she produced. Let me look that one up. Hmm. Um, yeah, I, I, I first saw her right. in. I first saw her in uh, Vampire Academy. She was one of the main characters in Vampire Academy, and she brought it there. Uh, she was in Everybody Wants Some, the uh, uh, Richard Linklater movie. Uh, she was in a lot. Uh, she was in The Disaster Artist. Uh, she was in a couple of other. Uh, what was that really uh, like sci-fi hmm. romance thing that she did? Oh gosh, um, was it? I gonna be. Um, it wasn't passengers. It wasn't. Not, not passen- uh, oh. Was it that? Was oh, it on, the I'm one? About oh, it's the... called. Uh, it's called Before I Fall. If you remember, Before I Fall. Not really. No. Okay. <laughs> no, that's that's dead right. to me now. It's all gone. Yeah. Okay. All right, and and but, uh, yeah, but she did. She produced Buffaloed, which she was really good in that one too. Mm. Um, yeah. So I think she's a big reason why this film works. The character is really appealing and really funny and also really kind of horrible. And Zoe Deutsch is able to play all of those things simultaneously. Um, so yeah, I, I, I did kind of dig it. I just wish it had gone a little harder. Uh, it, it, it was angrier, had been a little bitterer about the culture that allows, uh, millennials to seek fame in this way. And I say millennials because it's clearly about, uh, somebody, a millennial and her peers. It's about people that age. It's hard to imagine uh, like someone in their 70s being the subject of that plot. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I, I feel you know, like it feels like a young person story. Yeah, yeah. I, I feel like if there had been a little bit more focused outrage, then it would have been a lot stronger as a satire. As it is, it's a little bit affable from time to time, which is fine. You know, that makes it fun to watch. But it could have been a lot stronger. Well, I have no segue between that and my next film. Uh, <laughs> my next film is a film I reviewed out of Sundance, so I haven't rewatched it like really recently, but it was like only like five months ago. Uh, but uh, it's a new film from director Andrew Siemens, and it stars Rebecca Hall and Tim Roth. Already great cast. Um, mm-hmm. Rebecca Hall plays uh, a woman who you know she's got a nice fancy job. She's a single mother. Uh, she's uh, dating a guy, but I think he's married and it's not, it's clearly, she knows it's clearly just for the sex. This is not a long-term thing. We're not going to get married. She's very much in control of her life to the point that like there are interns who like look up to her and ask her for life advice. Cause if anyone's got her shit together, it's Rebecca Hall. <laughs> and then one day she's at a conference and she sees, on far on the other side of the room, he doesn't even make eye contact with her, mm. Tim Roth. And all of a sudden, you can see in her eyes, sheer panic. Absolute terror and panic. All of that control that she had over her life is completely ripped away in an instant. And she has to run. And then she starts noticing him around. He's not doing anything. He just happens to be shopping at Target when she's like shopping for back to school clothes for her daughter. And she starts getting creeped out and scared until finally she confronts him in a park and says, I know what you're doing. You need to leave me alone. And he has no idea what she's talking about. Hmm. And she she knows he's manipulating her and you're not sure for a minute like what the hell is going on and you're still not sure what the hell is going on until and i don't want to ruin this for you there is a monologue halfway through the movie resurrection that is just rebecca hall telling one person and like one uninterrupted take from from many minutes the story of what happened with her and Tim Roth. Okay. And ordinarily it's the sort of thing where there might be like flashbacks and you like see it. You don't need it. Rebecca Hall is that good an actor. What happens in that monologue? Her backstory with Tim Roth is one of the scariest fucking things I've ever heard. Like the stuff that <laughs> she it. is okay. convinced happened. The stuff that she is convinced happened, whether or not you believe her, whether or not you believe mm-hmm. Tim Roth's side of it, no matter what, the story is fucking weird. And But in that kind of weird tales, holy shit, terrifying Pulp Fiction kind of way. Okay. And it, I, I'm not kidding. I'm just, I'm. It, it's like that scene in Down With Love. Where at the end of the movie, someone gives a really long monologue where you find out that the entire movie has been this incredible deception and they go on for like three minutes and it just seems like it's this most absurd thing you've ever heard. And then it Mm. cuts to the person listening to the monologue and it's just the funniest reaction shot because their mouth is slack. 
it's like that, except you just heard the saddest story in the world. Like I just, I, my mouth is agape at that point. And from that point on, and you know, like where her head is at, you see her unravel, and you see here's how someone who is incredibly strong and powerful and confident in themselves can, through manipulation, conjoling, sleep deprivation, start to lose control over their lives, start to mm -hmm. make bad decisions, start to fall back into abusive patterns where they become a victim, where they absolutely would never normally allow themselves to be. She's unable to tell her daughter what's going on, and her daughter, and we see it from her perspective, sees her mom turn into someone who seems dangerously unhinged. And mm -hmm. she is desperate to get out of that house because she has no idea that she's being protected. All she sees is that she's in danger from her mother. And you see how helpless Rebecca Hall is because she cannot tell her daughter what we in the audience know. Hmm. It's unbelievably riveting. It is weird. Seriously, when you watch the movie, you're going to be like, that is fucking weird. And there's at least two scenes in this movie that are so fucking weird. That you honestly, you know, you don't even know if you should be scared or laugh, or if you should laugh. Hmm. And if you laugh, I wouldn't blame you, but it would be a very dark laugh. It would be a very twisted, bleak comedy you're watching if you think it's funny. Hmm. Uh, but anchoring this is an one of many completely pitch perfect uh, uh, performances from Rebecca Hall, who I am increasingly convinced is one of the best actors working today. Just uh -huh. absolutely phenomenal in every single thing she's in, no matter how difficult the material, she fucking nails it. And Tim Roth hasn't been this good in a really long time either. He's really fucking creepy. <laughs> uh, so this is a very strange film, and it's not going to be to everyone's taste. And even people who normally think they like you know, these kinds of psychological thrillers might mm -hmm. be put off because, man... <laughs> creative decisions were made this is not like we just talked about last time about the gray man and about how uh -oh. it feels like they just were confident we're just confidently letting it be generic like mm -hmm. yeah this is just what spy movies are like the, the writer director andrew siemens like he was like no i'm gonna make this one distinct <laughs> i'm not gonna <laughs> let this be a formula like I, you, you think you see where we're going i'm not doing that and it's gonna be fucking weird and not everyone's gonna be into it but I was into it. And I admire hmm. just how absolutely out there this movie's plot gets and how the two main performances make it work. Make it, if not believable, then you believe that they believe it. Hmm. And that is terrifying enough for me. So I really, really like this movie a lot. I, I, I love this movie in a weird way, even though it's a difficult watch in some respects. Uh, and if anything I've said sounds exciting to you, I hope you watch it because it's really, really good. I'm really sorry I missed this because, yeah, th this one looked really, really interesting. And this is just a case of the studio not getting me a screener on time. So Which I, is, I again, th it's it. their prerogative. We have no control over that. It's But it's a mm. bummer. I really wanted you to see this one because I really wanted to talk it out with you, even though I really do feel like it would be a disservice to talk in great detail. Because yeah. it's not it's not like a movie that's like really, really huge and everyone's gonna go see it. Like it's it's got a small release, it's gonna take some time. Um I think eventually it's gonna I think it's gonna be on shutter at some point, but in any case, wherever you find it, find it. It's so mm. damn good. Anyway, what uh what do you got? Mm. You got two more movies that I haven't seen and uh, yeah. I think they're both on shutter. Uh so um, uh why don't you they talk are, about Yeah. 
They are yeah, tell the me about allegoria. Water. Tell well, me about allegoria. Al- allegoria. Okay, let me tell you about. I'll, I won't t- spend very long talking about allegoria because allegoria just sucks out loud. Oh, but dear. Uh, uh, allegoria is the f- uh, first feature film written and directed by Spider One. Uh, Spider. Uh, for people who were paying attention in the 90s, is the frontman for the band Power Man 5000. Uh, if you remember the band Pyro- Power Man 5000. They were I do big... not. I know the name. What, what, what do they do? Give me, give me like a hit. Um, what was the Power uh, Man you, hit? You've heard, you've heard Power Man on soundtracks. Like they were in... Uh, what was the last movie I saw them in? Uh, uh, Titan AE or something. Um, oh, God. Uh... They did uh, Nobody's Real, um, The End Is Over, When Worlds Collide. Those are some of their bigger hits. Uh, uh, Spider also happens to be Rob Zombie's brother. Uh, so What a coincidence. Ro- yeah, Rob Zombie, I think, directed a couple of uh, Power Man 5000's music videos. So, so uh, wait maybe, a minute. Maybe wait, are, Spider- they, are they like half-brothers? Was like Robert Zombie's dad, like Dave Zombie... And well, the real li- like... the real name is Cummings, and so uh, they, but oh. they're, no, they're they're blood brothers. That's so disappointing. Uh, actually, I was really hoping his last name was actually Zombie. I remember one time uh, I I got my hands on a script that Rob Zombie had written for. Uh, this is before like I think the second Crow movie kind of tanked, because oh, they yeah, were talking he's... about doing more and more, and he was attached mm. to. It's the a, Crow a mo- 2037 or something. Yeah, it was called, I think, it was, I think that's right. It was a Crow 2037 colon A New World of Gods and Monsters. And the idea was Rob Zombie had basically taken the basic premise of the Crow, someone comes back from the grave to get revenge, but he had set it in like this post-apocalyptic horror universe, kind of like the movie Vampire Hunter D. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was pretty cool, but I remember uh, uh, I, I saw the script and it had said a screenplay by... Robert W. Zombie. And I like the, something about putting the W in there just made it sound so official that I assumed that he'd like changed his last name to Zombie, but okay, I don't know. I, I think he has. I think he he has officially changed Legally his changed name it to Zombie. Point. Legally changed it to Zombie. Oh, uh, I wish I could have been there when the when the judge was like, and why would you like to change your last name to Zombie, Mr. Cummings? Um Spider has previously made a bunch of like horror short films, and uh Allegoria is barely feature length. It's 69 minutes long and it's a series of short films. It's an anthology movie. Okay. So, uh, just sort of stringing together a lot of his ideas and allegoria is all about artists. Uh, in the, one of the very first, in the very first, uh, vignette, it's about a, a play director who is, you know, one of those old angry bearded guys who talks about how nothing, nothing you ever do is right. Give me a, sample of the truth i want the truth and he starts yelling at all the students and all the students are like eh, kind of rolling their eyes this is what a mean professor looks like turns out one of the students is a zombie and bites him and that's the short oh uh yeah Th- there's uh, uh, oh it's not very satisfying oh these some of these elements will come back around though. He actually does manage to start tying things together by the film the time the film comes again. There's another vignette. It's about a screenwriter. He's writing a horror scene about somebody getting sla- it's a horror, a horror movie. Somebody's getting slashed up and there's blood and his idea is that uh the the killer is called the Whistler and that's my slasher movie it's going to be great. And then the Whistler shows up at his apartment and kills him and his girlfriend in the ways he described in his screenplay. 
Oh. These are the kinds of short stories you might come up with when you're in high school. That feels like half the that feels like half an idea. Yeah. Yeah. Like yeah. you need to like um, that's where like it goes, and then there's like a twist on top of that at the end that sort of makes it interesting as opposed yeah. to just stuff that happens. Yeah, then uh, there's an, another sequence with, like, this really kind of tortured artist who talks about how he's really seeking genius. And while he's uh, he talks on the phone with his girlfriend, he's like, yeah, you don't really care about real art. And then uh, this, like, monster appears next to him, and he talks to the monster about how this is my greatest installation yet. Like, this kind of gnarly-faced thing. And it's a little, it's, it's like he sculpted this thing, but it's also alive and that's his, mm. gr- his masterpiece. And that's the end of that vignette. Again, that's the start of the story. What are you doing here? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, that's, not, that's not the end. That's, that's, that's where it begins. <laughs> and then it's like, oh, interesting. But the, like, then, uh, then there's a, like a slasher film within the movie. We pull out of the slasher film and we get to see people watching the slasher film. And it turns out one of those characters was the girlfriend that the sculptor guy was on the phone with. And she's also the character who will uh, end up attending the acting class with the zombie at the beginning. So it all starts tying together a little bit. Uh, and there's a bit that Spider seems to have ripped off directly from the Lords of Salem, where a rock band has discovered this six note phrase that will like unlock evil. And if you recall, there was a record in Lords of Salem that did that same thing. Mm. Like that was hypnotized. also a plot point in uh, Studio Six Six Six, the Foo Fighters movie that came out earlier this year. Well, I didn't see that, but from what I understand, that's a little bit more of like a little bit more satirical because the Foo Fighters played. Oh, it is. It's just the movie. the premise was that uh, there's like. A, a, a satanic song that Dave Grohl starts writing and can't stop writing, and it gradually unleashes demons that kill all yeah. the Foo Fighters. Like that was, but yeah. point is, evil song, evil song yeah, is regardless yeah. part of it. Yeah, uh, Spider has absolutely nothing to say about art or the effects of art. He just seems to know that being a tortured artist can be a scary thing, maybe, or at least mm. that's that's what the movie's trying to say. That oh. devoting yourself to the arts can kind of lose you into this satanic space. But he doesn't explore that. He doesn't give us long extended sequences where we get to see a very slow deterioration of somebody into art. Or you know, they, It hints at it. Like you said, it's the beginning of a lot of stories. The idea of somebody sculpting a, a literal monster and his art goes out and kills people or maybe possesses him and he starts to kill people. Uh, that would be a full story. It might just be an episode of Tales from the Crypt, but at least it's a story. Uh, this is a bunch of cute little setups that uh, Spider thinks is all that is needed. Are they short at least? Because it sounds like, 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 just for the example, mm. that one right there, where, oh, turns out the artist's latest thing is a monster he created. Mm. That sounds like maybe five to eight minutes. Is it, is it, they're really short at least? Is that because then maybe you can get away with it in a kind of like a quick and punchy, here's just a list of fun ideas I had kind mm. of vibe? Uh, it, it, it does, it feels like a bunch of note cards. It feels like an outline. Mm. It feels like he had a bunch of ideas for vignettes. And so he just put them all in the same movie and decided to tie them in by the end. Uh, mm. it, it's not awesome. It's not scary. It's not clever. It's, uh, really, really frustrating that he thinks he's saying something profound. I'm not going to compare this to Rob Zombie's movies. Uh, he's Rob Zombie's brother, but he's not making a movie like that. The film I'm going to compare it to, and it's much better than this movie because nothing's worse than this movie, but Glenn's... <laughs> Jesus. 
Glenn Danzig made a movie a couple of years ago called Verotica. Oh, God, I missed that. Did you? <laughs> no, I heard it was amazing. Not in a good way, it's, but I heard it was no, amazing. It, it, it's like, uh, it's pretty amazingly bad. Uh, especially, there's a, a. The opening vignette in Verotica is mm-hmm. about a woman who freaks out because she's brought a, a, a man back to her apartment and they're getting hot and heavy. They're having sex. And he exposes her chest and she has eyeballs where her nipples ought to be. And oh. and this is never explained. Like, if this oh. is just a, a, a unique growth on her body or what. But he sees the eyeballs and he runs away and he's really scared and she gets really despondent and she cries out of one of her breast eyes and it lands on a spider and the spider mutates into a gigantic vengeful spider monster who then takes to the streets of Paris and begins breaking people's necks in the night. <laughs> you had me until... Honestly, it sounded like a Junji Ito story for a minute there mm-hmm. and then, like, then it just turned into, like, yeah, spider um, the Jack the Spider instead of Jack the Ripper, and and the, this is an, it's an incredibly cheap movie. Uh, the Crypt Keeper character is played by Caden Cross, and she has nothing of interesting or wit to say. Uh, he hires a lot of other uh, strippers and porn stars that he knows to just sort of writhe around. There's another vignette about a woman who's cutting off other women's faces. It's one of those movies that they're really trying to pad out to feature length by including like three minute strip sequences in the middle which are just death. And then the last one is like an Elizabeth Bathory story about somebody who bathes in blood. And that is like 10 straight minutes of just a topless woman in a bathtub. And that's kind of it. Veronica is difficult to get through, but it is a special kind of bad. I, I Veronica at the very least is something you can talk about. Something you can kind of dare a friend to see. It's like, go take a, you know, have a few beers and say this. You won't believe how bad Glenn Danzig's movie is. Uh, uh, Allegoria, unfortunately, doesn't even have that sense of fun. It's a little too competent for its own good. Mm. Uh, he actually is, you know, trying to make something that looks really professional. He's got some pretty decent actors in this. Uh, one of, one of the actresses, her name is um, I'm not sure how to pronounce it, but it's spelled K R S Y, Kersey, I guess. Uh, her name is Kersey Fox. And she's good. She has a really great monologue partway through the movie where she's like possessed by evil and says, yeah, I'm going to like disappear into my art. And that's kind of cool, a cool monologue. But he has not thought anything through. He has put everything on the most superficial level and expects us to find it deep when really I'm not sure he's really saying anything. So this is like student film city. It is it is it is quite bad. My question for you, Whitney, mm-hmm. is um does this make you want to cover Spider One's one season wonder horror TV series Death Valley on Cancel Too Soon more or less? Oh, more, absolutely. Um. Okay, because <laughs> he did a, he did a series on MTV in 2011, uh, which was uh, about uh, a division of the police department in the Valley in California that dealt with like supernatural crime. Oh, Which is actually not a bad idea. It's yeah. just now now that I know Spider One was involved, I'm just like I don't know if that's gonna be good. Um, Let me look but up that anyway. show. Um, uh, well, in any case, tell me tell me about instead of that. Right. Um, well, actually, hold on a second. I have a question about this next movie. Okay. Um, is this Guar? 
Uh, this is Guar. Um, oh, okay, cool. Guar. They made a documentary about Guar. Uh, Guar uh, was, uh, and this takes uh, takes you through the history of Guar, kind of chronologically, which they kind of have to do because Guar is one of those bands that has, over its co- the course of its lifetime, had like a hundred different members. Uh, people have like come in and dropped out, and people were on a tour once, and they're considered official members of Guar. There were people who did performance art stuff with Guar. If you don't know Guar... Uh, for, oh god, you're in for a treat. Oh golly. Uh, first of all, the original uh, name of the band Guar was... <laughs> they said, we need to form a metal band, man. What should we call it? And he just said... and it's, uh, They even spell it on, on the website. It's G-W-A-A-A-R-R-R-G-G-H-H-L-L-L-G-H. Guar! Uh, which was shor- shortened to simply Guar. Um... It's meant to be. It's meant to be a noise. It's not a word. And Guar was founded by a bunch of guys in Richmond, Virginia, who uh, tried to go to art school and were told you can't make the kind of art you want to because all they wanted to do was make like cheap B movies, like monster movies, and like science, gory science fiction comics, a like heavy metal magazine. Like that's what they were raised on. They loved heavy metal yeah. and they loved bad B movies. They liked, you know, really national lampoon and mad magazine. Like that was just the kind of stuff they were into. And, uh, eventually they just decided to turn that into performance art in this little abandoned milk factory, uh, where hippies said, Hey, if you're an artist, you can live here for cheap. And they're like, yeah, man, we're going to come in here and live for cheap. And they just, started skull and it wasn't just a, like a band they weren't just performing music the the costumes and the characters were a big part of this and they made these gigantic elaborate death metal costumes with like, i'm know, amazed that they're not like passing out from the heat on stage they're like really hmm. big you think they didn't like, uh <laughs> well and, fair enough but like i here, here's the deal though have you ever actually seen guar in concert uh, no, I never saw Gore in concert. I before. have, actually. I don't even oh, go to concerts man. that often. I was at, It was actually one of the coolest Comic-Cons I ever went to. Uh, it was the year that the video game Brutal Legend came out. Okay. And Brutal Legend is a really cool game, actually. Uh, and uh, it's uh, basically uh, a roadie voiced by Jack Black uh, gets sucked into a fantasy realm based on heavy metal album covers mm. with a whole bunch of heroes and villains voiced by like Lita Ford and Ozzy Osbourne. And it's, it's really fucking cool actually. But at, it was around the time it had, it was coming out and they had a concert at Comic-Con with Guar. Oh man. And it was fucking cool. <laughs> I'm not going to lie. It was really fucking cool. Mm. Guar is, you don't even have to like their music. They just put on a great show. Yeah. 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 You it, know, it's it just like, it just imagine like, like, like if Barney like got to high school and started like smoking pot and getting into metal and then, like, he, like, turned into, like, a real dinosaur and started, like, putting, like, armor on and shit and started, like, rocking out in front of, like, a whole band. Like, it's, like, it's that kind mm. of, like, elaborate costume work. Oh, it's so fucking cool. Yeah. Uh. And uh, they, they and they tried to be as shocking as possible. And, you know, yeah. they, they, 
they sing about death and they sing about shit and they sing about pissing and they would pee and pee and bleed on the audience. Uh, in their early shows, they would fill up uh, pinatas with uh, dollar bills and and qu- or it was quarters and lollipops and cat shit. Like you would no. break this open and they actually get like cat poo on the audience. Uh, the lead singer is a guy named Dave Brocky. He was one of the actual co-founders, uh, and his stage persona was Odorous Arungus. And, uh, Odorous Arungus, uh, his trademark was, they, they called it, um, I think the, the Cuttlefish of Cthulhu. It was his penis. He had this gigantic <laughs> dangling winged phallus hanging down between his legs, and he would you know, spray blood out of this fake penis on the audience and just you know, sing about how he, he's squirting blood out of his penis onto an audience. That's the kind of band Guar is. That sounds gross. Stay away. Or go. You know, really get yourself coated in slop. It's going to be wonderful. Um, this documentary is actually really good about capturing the character of not just of like Odorous Arungus and all the other uh, members like Balzac, the Jaws of Death. That's Mike Dirks. Uh, Jizmek. Balzac the is Gusha. the best. Pardon? Balzac is the best. Well, and and he is one of the longest running members of of the gans of the. I band. just love the so look. Is, Balzac uh, looks. Balzac looks like um, like a Conan the Barbarian version of the Mouser robots from Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Like these really big chomping teeth and like that's his whole head yeah like, he's yeah, really cool that's looking. ball sack um there was uh jizz mac de gusha that's uh the drummer brad roberts he was in the band for a long time uh the the two kind of masterminds was dave brocky odorous arungus and a guy named hunter jackson he uh he was his character was named techno destructo and uh techno destructo was uh sort of um he was like the, the head sculptor. He was the one who came up with a lot of the onstage machines. And they actually had this whole team of people who were not just sculpting, but also some other uh, performance artists. Uh, Danielle Stampy, uh, her character was named uh, Silmenstra Hyman. Uh, she uh, she did like fire eating and fire spinning. And uh, you also sprayed blood on people. Uh, everybody sprayed blood out of their crotch. That was a big part of this show. Uh, you know, Blothar the Berserker, Sleazy P. Martini was there, uh, like, he was a, a vocalist, but he was also, like, played their, uh, uh, their agent. But what the, the, the documentary tells us is about who these people are offstage, and how, uh, really frustrating it was to be part of this gigantic collective of performance artists who all have these wonderful ideas and are all bringing all this wild stuff onto stage and you're know, really making a, a name for Guar. Uh, and yet nobody is like, nobody is the di- distinctly in charge. There's not one director of the band. There's not a leader of the band. You could say that it was Dave Brocky, but they point out that Dave Brocky was the leader because he took everything. He, they say, okay, we have this wonderful idea. And then Dave Brocky would say, oh yeah, and this is a great idea. Look, and I can do it this way and do it this way. And now it's my idea. It's like, no, wait, Dave, that's not, oh, well, okay. And, uh, they even talk about how, when they kind of hit it big in like the mid nineties, a lot of the reasons, uh, one of the big reasons they made it big was actually an appearance on Beavis and Butthead. A lot of people were introduced to Guar through yeah, uh, Beavis re- and Butthead. Talking I remember about how that, like was. Beavis and that Beavis and Butt had like one of their old sticks was that they used to watch uh, music videos, and oftentimes they talk about how much something sucked. 
Yeah. Like, what is this? This sucks. And then every once in a while, like, Danzig or Guar would come on, and they would get Beavis and Butthead's stamp of approval, and all they could talk about is how this is the coolest fucking thing they've ever seen in their lives. Mm. Uh, and in the case of Guar, it would be. Yeah. 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 Like your, uh, I got a lot of respect to, to, for Guar. I they're, yeah, they're to, immature as hell, but I have a lot of respect for Guar. Well, I mean, that, so is it a good documentary? Like, is it because no, we're a, just talking great, about the band? It's a great documentary yeah. because because it do, do, goes so far into tracing the actual history of the band because it's long and complicated, and they manage to get it all into a feature length. Uh, and they actually try to trace sort of the mood as they were making each one of their records. The records, um, I think, it wasn't until. Like sometime in the 2000s when they decided, I think it was, uh, there's a 2001 record they did called Violence Has Arrived. And I think that was the time that uh, they decided to say, hey, you know what? We're going to try to be a real band now. Hmm. That was, that was like seven albums in. They said, we're going to try to be, we're going to be an actual band now. It's not just going to be about the performance. We're actually going to try to make good records. And so they actually do have a bit of musicianship to what they do, even if they are, you know, singing about, you know, shitting on the world. Um, I have a signed copy of Scumdogs of the Universe. They nice reissued, they which is their second record. Uh, they, they reissued it. And, uh, oh, golly, it's a special thing. Um <laughs> and but it also takes them, takes people through like the really hard times. A lot of because they had some they had such a a high turnover rate, there's going to be a lot of stories in there about how the band wasn't working out for some people. Some people got really, really sick. Some people got cancer. A couple people died along the way. It was, you know, after a while, it's like, okay, now we're 40. Are we going to be Guar when we're 50? Are we going to, like, how long do we keep on doing the Guar project? And weirdly, it was when David Brocky passed and David Brocky died in 2014. Uh, when Dave Brocky passed, that kind of revitalized the band in a new way. A lot of the remaining members said, hey, you know, we're not going to have Odorous Arungus anymore. Odorous is dead. That's part of the story. Mm. Um, but uh, we're going to keep on going. We're going to and they gave you actually get to see footage of Dave Brocky's Viking funeral. They actually put his <laughs> body on a boat, pushed it out into water and set it on fire uh, at, at the uh an annual party they had called the Guarbecue. And we oh, yeah. get to see uh, bits of his, his memorial service and we get to see his, uh, his, his tombstone, which is in, I think it's in Richmond, Virginia. Uh, I remember when there was this big movement to have uh, Confederate monuments taken down and it's still going this, this movement. Yeah. Uh, in there's a, a gigantic Confederate monument in Richmond, Virginia. And, uh, <laughs> There was a petition being passed around, and I signed it to have the Confederate general in Richmond, Virginia, replaced with Odorus Arungus. That why not? Right. Please, why not? <laughs> <laughs> hey, it's a um, local boy, right? Yeah. Local boy made good. There are Guar movies. I didn't know about the Guar movies. I feel uh, like I heard about them once. Yeah, Guar made films. Like that they just sort of threw together in their spare time in like their studio, uh, really low budget. They just sort of made it up as they go. They wanted to go on. Um, and I haven't seen any of these movies and I feel remiss in not seeing the Guar film. So maybe on the, is there like a a special uh, DVD box set I can get you for Christmas or something? 
<laughs> put these things on fucking DVD. They barely have they money should. to make them. I think you oh, probably come on. You're telling me there isn't a market. You're telling me when they're selling T-shirts and and albums at the back of the theater whenever they do a Guar concert. Yeah, they couldn't put out even if it was a bootleg. They couldn't put out like a a, a DVD. Come on. Um, the one I want to see, and I, I think this one's just on YouTube. Um, is uh, it's called Skullhead Face. And they came up with this new character called Skullhead mm. Face. Eight, skull uh, with one L and head is H-E-D. Okay. And that looks like this really twisted uh, science fiction picture. And I really, really hope that I can talk about one of these movies on this podcast at some point. Because they look freaking amazing. <laughs> they look they look like movies that Guar made. <laughs> um. I, I encourage you, to, I think if you're not familiar with Guar, this is a pretty safe intro. Because Guar is so caustic and aggressively disgusting. Uh, you know, just look up some of their, their song titles and you'll understand just how gross these people are. Uh, if you were to, like, go into a Guar show, you might be a little put off. Watching watching the documentary film gives you a good education as to about, about what Guar is. It shows just enough of the characters and the performances for you to really kind of under understand and have a lot of fun with them from a safe distance, and also getting to know sort of the human side of it. And then, once you've fallen in love with these weirdos, you can maybe see a concert film or just see a a, a video of you on YouTube of Guar performing live and all of the goop and mess that they would make. Uh, I mean, that's the thing. We, we don't have a lot of... Uh, I feel like that's a lot of what critics are nowadays in a lot of different mediums. You know, mm-hmm. there's talking about stuff that's already popular, and that's, that's a part of what we all do because people are already looking for that. But, you know, Guar is the kind of thing that ordinarily, like when we were kids... You'd find out about it because you knew someone cool at school or someone had a cool brother who'd been to a Guar concert or something. Mm-hmm. And then they would kind of talk you through it. And then, like, <laughs> they'd, they'd, like, play an album, but then they'd, like, reenact the, the the act for you so you could get the gist of it. And, mm-hmm. like, we're basically being invited into this club that knows about Guar. And I feel like that's a lot of what online film criticism and podcast criticism is nowadays. If you're not talking about the most mainstream stuff, like if your podcast isn't dedicated to like just star Wars or whatever, like that's something everyone already knows, but there's so many people out there who are just like, dude, (laughs) let me tell you about fucking sorceress. Like, let me tell you about like, (laughs) let me tell you, like, I just, I got to tell you about this weird thing I know about, even if it's something no one cares about. Like there's this guy, there's this guy. His name is uh, Phelan Porteous or Phelus, mm. and one of his rec- he's been doing this for years. I don't know who asked him to, but he's been doing this incredibly elongated deep dive into like these like really obscure German animated kids movies that are <laughs> barely animated and no one gives a fuck. And like, and he'll when he says like, and I found this one, and this one has a slightly different dub from the other version, and I'm going to show you how they're different. And I'm like, I didn't care until I found out you did, and now for the duration of this video, this mm. is everything to me because I'm I'm sharing in your enthusiasm. Yeah. So that's a big big part of this is is how do we get people into Guar? And if this is documentary didn't do it, what would we do? 
But it mm. sounds like this is a good introduction to Guar. You'll feel like you're part of the club, and then maybe you can seek out more Guar for yourself. Yeah, yeah. Um, whether cool. again, whether or not you're into Guar is is gonna you know your mileage will vary. Uh, if if uh, videos with names like Phallus in Wonderland or Tour de Scum excite you, uh, then by by all means. Uh, <laughs> Uh, what are some of their videos? Uh, there was, um, there, uh, I like that they all have like these really scary names, like the next mutation, Phallus in Wonderland. Uh, one is called All the Sex, and the, the one that they made immediately <laughs> thereafter was called Twice the Violence. So, All the Sex and Twice the Violence. Um, nice. And then, the, then in, in the late 90s, they put out one which was just called Surprising Burst of Chocolatey Fudge, which <laughs> in... In, in a weird way, is even more threatening than something called oh, Twice God. the Violence. Oh, God. What? Okay, that's fine. Yeah, the, like, right, they're, gonna... they're really silly, they're really satirical, okay. and yet they're also really shocking. It's it's just... It, I mean, it's my kind of humor, I suppose. So, I, I, you know, I'm, I'm really deep in, deeply into guar, but, uh, yeah. yeah. If, if you are scared to purchase a record called This Toilet Earth, then maybe stay away. <laughs> All right, let's re- let's wrap this up by reviewing some movies. Uh, we end every episode of Critically Acclaimed by reviewing our films on the Critically Acclaimed scale. If you're new or need a refresher, uh, that goes from C- to C+. The lowest you can get on our scale is a C-. That's below average. Everything that's below average falls under the C- umbrella, whether mm-hmm. we simply don't recommend it or think it's the worst thing we've ever seen in our lives. Uh, C is average there's some good, there's some bad it's just mediocre down the road maybe some people who like are part of different fan groups will like it more than others but regardless, mixed bag and then C plus is everything that's above average whether we simply kind of like it or we think it's the greatest movie ever made anything in between, boom C plus, on that note Whitney, Mm -hmm. where does This Is Guar fall? Uh, it's a C plus. Uh, I think this does the band very fair. I think it's incredibly informative, uh, and it's also just a, a wonderful topic. It's a pleasure to see Guar uh, kind of speak candidly about what they were going for and the kinds of things they were working on. They they cut through all of sort of the myth of it, and we got to meet these people for real, and we actually got to see that okay, they're you know well spoken, kind of weird into weird stuff, but you know who isn't into weird stuff here and there? Uh, yeah, it's it's really good. It's really really good. Awesome. Okay, uh, Allegoria. Uh, Al- so this is C minus. Uh, it, it's just, it, like I said, it's like a student film. It's like he didn't really think out what his, he wanted his point to be. He just had a few fun ideas and threw them onto film, and they don't fall together in an interesting way. All right. Uh, next up is uh, the psychological thriller Resurrection. Uh, this movie is not going to be for everybody. Some people are definitely going to kind of not know what to do with where the plot goes. Uh, but if you can get on this movie's wavelength, you're going to see two of the best performances of the year, I'll bet, in Rebecca mm-hmm. Hall and Tim Roth. Uh, it is really terrifying. It is very strange. I would go so far as to call it bold because it is absolutely not half-assing this. Um, so, again, not everyone's cup of tea, but I'm mm-hmm. very impressed. And I think that monologue from Rebecca Hall is some of the best work she's ever done. Uh-huh. All right. Uh, no, uh, not okay. Not okay. Um, a, a high C. I think it's a very noble endeavor. Um, it's uh, Zoe Deutsch is really, really good. I do recommend it. Uh, but yeah, I, I wish it had a little bit of a harder punch. I feel like this is covering a lot of similar grounds to other movies I've seen. Uh, but it does it competently, and so it, you know it's no bad thing. 
Fair enough. All right, and then lastly, Ron Howard's Thirteen Lives. Um, this is an incredibly like a competent and effective, but I would n- not say it's particularly engrossing. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I'm going to give it a high C as well. It's certainly well made, but it doesn't really connect. Uh, uh-huh. it, it doesn't hit the melodramatic high notes, and there's definitely a more suspenseful way to tackle the story. Uh, I do recommend, highly recommend, the documentary The Rescue. Uh, it covers pretty much everything this movie does, but with more intensity uh, and more of an emotional punch. But if you really want to see the Ron Howard version, it's fine. It's just not great, and Ron Howard mm. didn't really bring his his best work to it. That's true. Um, yeah. So that is that for Critically Acclaimed this week. We'll be back next week with reviews of different stuff, uh, such as Bullet Train, Prey, and They Slash Them. Uh, th- yes, thank you, Luca. Yes, I'll give you treats in a second. Luca wants attention. <laughs> oh, kid. Apparently, you didn't like those movies. Um, yeah, so that's it for Critically Acclaimed. Thank you, everybody, for listening. A big shout-out to all of our Patreon subscribers, without whom the show would not exist. Uh, if you want to sign up for Patreon, you get a ton of exclusive shows. Uh, including uh, a new show we're doing starting this month. Uh, and we're, we're still coming up with a name for it, but we're going to be talking about every single movie and episode of television dedicated to the Step Up franchise, which there's more than you'd think. Uh, there's also Only the Best. We review every single film ever nominated for Best Picture. We just released an episode dedicated to the Best Picture nominees from 1948. Uh, we've also got All Our Yesterdays, where we review every single episode of Star Trek in order. We do commentary tracks. This coming month, we're planning to do a commentary track for the Notorious box office dud cutthroat island and you get all of the shows you get on our normal feed but without ads because i know people don't like ads but uh, you know <laughs> but they pay the, they make the world go round don't they yeah. yeah uh so uh you can also talk to us about anything we discussed we discussed in this episode uh, if you want to email us our email address is letters at critically acclaimed.net we might read your email in an upcoming episode of we've got mail or if you'd prefer to write in the old-fashioned way whitney what is our p.o box now you can send us a physical letter. Send it to um, Odorous Arungus, uh, P.O. Box 641565, Los Angeles, California, 90064. Yeah. Uh, and, of course, we're on Twitter at Critic Acclaim. I am at William DeBiani. I'm at Whitney Seibold. And until next time, never forget, everyone's a critic. I want to go to the midnight show. I'm sorry, what? <laughs>